Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined this week by Jonathan Robbins, Associate Professor of History at Michigan Tech. He is the author of Oil Palm, A Global History, which has won the American Historical Association's World History Book Prize, as well as the uh, Agricultural History Society's Best Non-U.S. Book Prize. Jonathan, thank you so much. And congratulations on the book, first of all. And thank you so much for coming on the program. Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure. So uh, I, I, I'd like to start off really kind of at a basic level, because I think a lot of listeners may not really feel like palm oil is front and center in their everyday lives. But if you look at the ingredients list on a lot of things or the sort of components that go into making a lot of stuff, palm oil is a massive commodity. Uh, why don't we just start with uh, what interested you about writing the book and then just give people sort of an overview of what palm oil is, where does it come from, uh, and, and you know how important is it as a, as a commodity? Yeah, well, what sparked my interest is it sounds like the, the same thing you observed is that palm oil is it's everywhere. Um, it, it started showing up on labels on you know food, soaps, shampoos, detergents, and in all kinds of household things. Um, and I started noticing this in maybe the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and so I, I was curious just about this this thing that had seemingly come out of nowhere and, and was replacing a lot of other oils like soybean oil. And I had done some earlier work uh, for my first book on West Africa and, and the cotton industry, and uh, palm oil is just—it's everywhere. It's you know even documents that have nothing to do with palm oil—it's it, there. It's in the background. It's the main topic. It's just—it's an inescapable thing in West African history. And uh, I w looked around, and I, I noticed that uh, nobody seemed to be writing a, a big picture um, overview, a commodity history. Um, of palm oil, and so I decided to to go for it. Um, and as it turned out, um, uh, investigative journalist Jocelyn Zuckerman um, did publish a month before my book another excellent book um, that does a great job with the history and does a lot of um, more contemporary um, investigative reporting as well. Um, so there was a gap there that I was trying to fill. Speaking of, could you mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about commodity history? Um, because this became a thing in the last 20-ish or so years, famous books on salt and cod. And what does a commodity history allow you to do? And then I'm just curious, do you have a particular theoretical perspective you bring to the study of commodities? You know, obviously, this is a, this is a famous Marxist uh, tradition associated with the commodity form. Um, and maybe you could just describe from your perspective what a commodity is. So to boil that down, the whole commodity history thing, what that allows you to do, and what actually is a quote-unquote commodity. Could you have a commodity in 800 AD, or, or CE rather, or is this a product of capitalism, etc.? Yeah, it's a, a tough question. Um, and I would I'd start with that definition. And my working definition of a commodity is nothing but particularly fancy or theoretically rich. It's something that is produced for sale on the market um, and is done so on a big enough scale that we can call it a commodity as opposed to 
something else. Um, and I know that's a real wishy-washy um, explanation and sort of a, you know, a commodity when you see it, uh, because it is historically contingent. There's lots of stuff that was made and sold that doesn't quite rise to the level of commodification. Um, so, you know, I tend to look for things that are produced in really large quantities and are typically exchanged over pretty long distances. Um, so it is something that I um, associate with the, you know, the emergence of capitalism as an economic system. Uh, I, I wouldn't go after a medieval or an ancient historian for, for using the commodity approach um, in earlier periods. I think it, it could work. And I think what's, what's important for me is that it's not the same thing as a history of stuff. Um, as material history, which there, there's a lot of great material history out there. Um, and what excites me and, can, and what I think is still interesting about commodity history after having you know, just mountains of these books um, about cod, salt, bananas, you know, you name it, is that it lets you look not just at the thing, but at these social systems embedded and sur surround these things, the economic sides, the political factors, um, and in culture as well, uh, they're all sort of wrapped up in commodity history. And so for me, it's a it's a vehicle for doing a lot of different things that would normally be broken out in different disciplinary approaches. So labor history, political history, cultural history, environmental history, and these things tend to get siloed um, in in historical monographs. And commodity history is one way of bringing those things together in a way that I think is really productive. Just a very quick theoretical question, um, and that's a question of commodity fetishism and mm -hmm. fetishization. And how do you feel like you would respond to that inquiry about fetishization of commodity? Are you giving agency to something mm -hmm. that doesn't have agency? I, I, I have no idea, but I, I, this is the first commodity. You're our first commodity historian, so I'm just curious mm -hmm. how, how you uh, approach that question of agency by centering commodities. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a very, very sophisticated theoretical take on this. Um, I don't like assigning agency to inanimate objects. You know, I think I think labor history, especially, fought long and hard to make that word agency mean something, to mean it for people who normally aren't in the story. And so, I have a hard time saying that an oil or a tree has agency. Um, it's a thing, and it has important characteristics. It interacts with the natural and human world in important ways. But you know, is it making decisions? I think not. And and so that's where I've I've held off going down the sort of you know the Bruno Latour actor network theory rabbit hole. It's it's just it's it's too much for me to to put agency um even even in a very metaphorical way yeah, in the hands of, of non-human um things. Although although I will say this book has made me think a lot harder about animals and whether, you know, an, does an elephant have agency? Maybe. Um, but, but the tree itself, the oil, uh, no, I don't think so. But your comment about the commodity form having some kind of agency, I think it's a trap that some commodity history falls into is assuming that the supply makes its own demand or the demand makes its own supply. I think that's, that's a myth. It's what the commodity fetish that Marx is talking about is doing. It's concealing these these real power relationships um, at either end of the commodity chain. And I think by, by focusing on on the people who use these commodities, who make them, that's how we, we get past the commodity as the thing with agency. It's really the people that, who, are, who are making and using these things. They have agency. 
let's talk a little bit about the history of oil palm and, and specifically where where does it originate? Where does it come out of? Uh, and and how do we start to see? Uh, I know it really sort of seems to hit the world market uh, with the the rise of the the transatlantic slave trade and, and commodity trade. But how does it begin to spread? Kind of prior to that, uh, those developments. Mm. Well, the current state of research, and I say this because it's um, you know a constantly changing. Um, field, you know, looking at, at paleobotany. Um, but the current state of research suggests that oil palm did originate in Western Africa. Um, exactly where is, is not clear, um, but this is the Atlantic coast of Africa, um, humid forest regions. Uh, but it is not a forest tree. Um, it's not technically a tree at all. Palms are more closely related to grasses. Um, and Botanists have hypothesized that it probably emerged as a kind of swamp species or something growing along riverbanks, um, taking advantage of gaps in the forest canopy to grow. And it is clear from, from oral tradition, from archaeological evidence, that uh, when humans start showing up in these places, they used a lot of oil palm. They seem to have really helped oil palm spread into new areas. And this is, this is pretty clearly marked in the archaeological evidence where we see you know, the, the remains of palm fruit, palm seeds, and campfires, um, and in language as well, um, the, the evolution of different words for, for oil palm across the continent. So people have a big role in the, in the oil palm story. Um, the oil palm evolved long before humans and agriculture showed up, but it seems that uh, the, the prevalence of oil palm in Africa really exploded well, once humans d- discovered and started using it. How do you get oil from a palm? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, there are two kinds of oil that come from the oil palm tree, and this is the African oil palm tree. There's, there's an American oil palm as well. Um, so the fruit itself, the flesh, it's kind of like a plum, but not not sweet. And instead of being sugary, uh, it's oily. It's almost like a giant olive. And when you squeeze that flesh, you get palm oil, which is, which is the main oil that, that the tree gives. Inside the fruit, there's a seed, the kernel, that also makes oil. It's very similar to coconut oil. Um, the kernel kind of looks like a tiny coconut. And so you just crush the fruit and, and that's what the oil comes from. And uh, it's subject, depending on the time period uh, we're looking at the culture, to varying degrees of, of refining um, straight off the fruit. The oil is, in my view, not super pleasant um, as, as a taste that's, that's pretty strong. But a, a bit of refining and certainly cooking with it um, makes it a lot more palatable. Um, and most of the palm oil that we encounter today, at least in the U.S., is extremely refined. It's, it's been stripped of all its flavor and color and smell. Do we know uh, how it comes to be, how uh, palm oil comes to be introduced to uh, the European market or how Europeans come to be aware of it? Uh, kind of, you know, obviously this is leading to a lot of colonial excess, which we will get into. But but how does it initially uh, kind of make its way to Europe? Yeah, it's initially uh, an incidental product. Um, it's Palm oil is something that Europeans who are trading in Africa um, encounter. They eat it. They probably started buying it in the 1500s the portuguese is it calorically dense sorry just a quick question is it like is it really good for traveling is it a calorically dense easy to move product sorry to interrupt yeah no um it's a great question it is um all oils have roughly the same amount of calories um so so they're all 
pretty much the same. Um, it is somewhat easy to move in that in cooler temperatures, you know, once you get below roughly 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it solidifies or starts to solidify. Um, so it's easier to transport in cooler climates. And that's one thing that made it easier to, to use. And it's just really versatile. You know, anything you would use any other cooking oil for, you could use palm oil for if you like the flavor. So it, it's, you know, it, that's what I think helped account for some of its early popularity is, is it's just a very versatile, very abundant cooking oil in the region. So let's talk about the relationship then between uh, the palm oil trade and the slave trade. Initially, as uh, as you said, it's sort of an incidental commodity that gets transported across the Atlantic as part of the slave trade, but then it's viewed, uh, you know, we write about this in the book, it, it, it comes to be viewed as part of a backs basket of goods that could maybe replace the slave trade as Europeans start to move beyond that. What are the, what's the interaction between these, uh, these processes? Yeah. So during the slave trade, it's the, the quantities are small um, of palm oil that's involved, but, but it is important. Uh, it's, it's a vital food on slave ships, keeping enslaved people alive. It's, it was the only source of fat most slave ships carried. And it was highly valued for medicinal purposes, for treating skin ailments as well. And this relatively low volume but high importance uh, trade uh, is what first introduces palm oil to, to Europe. Some of it starts coming back. You know, the excess from slave ships starts turning up in Europe itself. And from a very early point, Europeans realize it's, it's a nice ointment. It's a nice medicine. You can make soap out of it. And as the British moved to abolish the transatlantic slave trade beginning in 1807, they have a lot of ships, a lot of capital locked up in the slave trade that needs something else to do. And many of these, these slave traders ha had also traded other things. You know, uh, slavery was the big export industry in the region, but there was still you know, a massive trade in gold and ivory and timber and, and lots of other commodities. So palm oil was was there, and it's one of a number of candidates that abolitionists hope could replace the slave trade. And initially, they're thinking about cotton, indigo, sugar, things that are being grown on slave plantations in the Americas, uh, but these are not very successful in, in Africa. Palm oil was already being produced in large quantities for local consumption, and a number of prominent slave dealers on the African coast find that they can quickly ramp up production. They can redirect captives uh, from the transatlantic slave trade into producing palm oil. So it's not really accurate to say that palm oil replaces the slave trade um, or that it ends slavery even, but it replaces the nature of exports coming out of many parts of West Africa. And this is in the 1810s, 20s, 30s, 40s. This is really ramping up. How does this relate to the larger story or does it relate to the larger story of uh, industrial capitalism that's happening uh, throughout the world, especially in the North Atlantic world at this time? It's a, a small, again, small in, in quantitative terms, but I think important piece in that, uh, as I mentioned, it, it allows for this redirection of capital that had been locked up in the slave trade in, of, of ships, of, of the manufacturing infrastructure that had previously made cloth and guns and other materials to trade for captives. That's just redirected wholesale into buying palm oil and carrying palm oil. And the development of new industries, first soap and then candles and a bunch of other 
industries in Britain create this this nearly unlimited demand for fats. Um, and it could be initially is anything. It's tallow from sheep and um, cows. It's whale oil. It's, it's all kinds of stuff. Um, and palm oil uh, is cheap. It's available. There's this pre-established trading network that, that can get it. And so it, it fills this, this, uh, this demand in Britain for oil. Um, and uh, the, I think the numbers I, I conclude in the book is that it's, it's roughly a third of, of the fat going into Britain by the end of the 19th century, uh, which is a lot. So it's kind of like if you think about sugar provides the caloric spur, people have argued for capitalism, is palm oil providing this type of fat for this type of British and North Atlantic industrial capitalism? Is, is that a way to think about it as one of the key commodities to this new form? Yeah, and it's I, th- I think one of the mistaken impressions about the role of palm oil in in the industrial revolution that I take on in the book is that it's this lubricant, and it's this great metaphor, you know, lubricant of industry, a lubricant of, of capitalism. Palm oil is used as a machine lubricant; it's used in train axle lubrication, but the quantities are are small. Um, there's much more of it that goes into soap and candles. And if palm oil had never existed, uh, you know, would the industrial revolution have still happened in Britain? Of course, they would have found something else. They they did go after all kinds of other sources of fat, but palm oil provided this cheap, relatively consistent supply of oil that was also relatively close to Europe. Um, and it did have a few unique properties. Its smell and its color were sometimes valued for soap, but these these in the long run uh, were not all that important. It was really just just the the price and the quantity uh, that mattered. Let's talk about the the role of palm oil in the race for Africa and the, the European push to colonize more and more of that continent. How big a, a part does palm oil play in that as a commodity, as something that attracts European interest? And yeah, what's just sort of, sort of you know, if you give people a sense of the interaction between the exercise of colonial power and this commodity. Yeah, the main contribution, I guess you could say, of, of the palm oil trade to the this this uh, scramble for Africa that starts in the 1880s is that as a pre-existing export trade, it creates a lot of friction between African merchants and African political elites and European merchants. You know, and this is true of any trade. They're, they're arguing over prices, over quality, of fraud. Um, they're haggling over contracts and access to suppliers, and Palm oil just happens to be uh, the leading export commodity in a number of regions of West Africa, which is now Nigeria and a few other parts along along the coast to the to the west as well. And I think we sometimes get this this mistaken impression that the colonization of Africa is driven specifically by corporate interests that you know corporations are driving it, and this is indirectly true. The companies that are buying palm oil are, are pretty small. They're not very politically connected, uh, but they're getting into trouble. And and that political trouble is what draws in the British and the French to try to, in their view, create stability, uh, but really to, to start conquering um, coastal states and, and gradually creep further and further inwards in the name of protecting free trade, protecting stability. Um, and, and the palm oil trade is, is the initial beneficiary of that. But most of these colonial governments had bigger goals than palm oil. They thought cotton in particular was going to be the next big export crop that would just dwarf palm oil in value. But palm oil 
was what was there. And as as other industries disappoint, uh, and they were very disappointing, palm oil persisted as this thing that, that provided a source of revenue once colonial governments had, had taken over the area. Uh, it seems from the book like this is also the period as as you know the the scramble for Africa is heating up and palm oil is playing a role in that. This also seems like the period where you start to see uh, efforts to expand palm oil production to other places, other parts of Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. What goes into that process? And maybe we could talk a little bit about the dynamics of that expansion a- as it applies to these different, you know, very disparate parts of the world. So most palm oil up to about 1910 was produced by farming families um, spread out across Western Africa. Um, Some of them were running large businesses, sometimes using enslaved labor, but I I think probably most of the oil that left the continent was made at a pretty small scale by, by family labor. And this was a very efficient system. It was balanced with subsistence agriculture in Africa, but you couldn't just turn a switch and double, triple production, you know? And this is what industrialists in Europe want. They want more and more and more oil from anywhere they can get it. And they're very quickly frustrated that colonial governments, having captured much of Africa, can't just turn up this dial and squeeze out more oil all of a sudden. And so one of the responses to this is to develop oil palm as a plantation crop to try to make palm oil a plantation industry. This happens in Africa with limited success, but simultaneously in Southeast Asia, where a bunch of other commodities, rubber in particular, but also coconuts, are also being developed as as plantation crops. And it's in Southeast Asia where this plantation industry really takes root and grows. Um, and you know, today it's it's the by far the biggest producer of palm oil. I think there are more oil palm trees in Indonesian plantations than in all of Africa combined today, and it's just a remarkable transformation set. How does palm oil interact with war and the mechanization of war over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries? Well, war helps expand the supply of palm oil. Um, Things like steam-powered warships are what make the conquest of these palm oil exporting areas possible. And I, I should say that many of these African states that are producing palm oil and selling it in the 1800s held their own against European military incursions for quite a long time. But the, the development of, of sort of late 19th century steam-powered armored warships um, allows the British and the French and the Germans to really push in and conquer these areas. There's also a growing importance in the First World War uh, and again in the Second World War uh, for Britain in particular and to a lesser extent France and the United States as well uh, in palm oil as a strategic resource that is not located in enemy-held territory. Um, It's something that could be scaled up um, and they could supply some really important material needs, um, including uh, tin plating, which we don't really think of tin plate is a military technology, but all kinds of metals had to be protected from corrosion. And the best way of doing that was tin plate and palm oil played this very small but important role in tin plating up until the 1950s in protecting tin from oxidation during the the tinning process. Um, So the US, for example, had a strategic stockpile of palm oil into the late 1950s because of the sense that it was this, this 
The quantities are small, but, but its role is really vital in, in the industry. You write a little bit of, in the book, and I'm sort of taking us back to Africa here, but you write a little bit in the book about the differences between the ways, say, uh, f- the French colonial operation in West Africa versus the, the German colonial operation versus what went on in the Belgian Congo. Can you talk a little bit about those differences for people and, uh, you know, as it relates to the development and, and I mean, the case of the Congo, the, the spread really of, uh, I think, you know, the plantation system and sort of the, the ways that the trade was managed. Yeah, the, the German case is, is the shortest one that I cover in the book, and, and Germany is the shortest lived colonial power in, in Africa. Um, and it is by far the most ham-fisted approach to colonization, um, you know, throwing soldiers and military force at problems. Um, when local leaders refuse to make enough palm oil, the answer is point guns at them and tell them, make more. Uh, when German companies want land to start plantations, the answer is military force to take the land. And when the Germans are, are evicted from these colonies after World War One, the British and the French who move into Cameroon and Togo find that this was extremely unpopular, uh, obviously, uh, and also not very efficient, not very productive. And both the British and French had been trying to run their African colonies on very low budgets. They, they didn't want to invest much metropolitan money in developing these colonies. They want the colonies to pay for themselves. Um, and so that meant using a lighter touch. Um, it's not that they were good colonizers or nice colonizers. It was just that violence was expensive um, and sometimes unproductive. And so they tended to rely on local leaders, local elites, local kings, chiefs, and to use incentives like tax rebates and, and you know um, salaries and things like that to try to get these leaders to um, squeeze their own people to produce more more oil and other export commodities. So it's this sort of hands-on, hands-off difference. In the Belgian Congo, you have this really unique situation of a very, very violent, very hands-on colonial power that is willing to invest a lot of money in developing this colony. You have a relatively small population. Uh, the population densities in Congo were very low compared to West Africa. And you have a number of companies, but especially one big one, what the company that becomes Unilever, that's willing to invest huge amounts of money in developing palm oil industry. And so this, this combination of imperial force plus private capital together in Belgian Congo creates this, this very large-scale industry that initially is not a plantation industry. They're initially harvesting pre-existing trees, but they move towards a plantation system over time. And they can do it because they have both capital and guns. Um, and without both of those things. Uh, there's nowhere in Africa where, where this plantation model works because most people don't want to work on a plantation. Uh, they don't want to give up their land for a plantation. Getting further into the 20th century as we get up to modern times and, and you know, this sort of explosion of palm oil as an ingredient in so many things, it seems like sort of a chicken and egg problem. Does the, does the mass farming plantation production in Southeast Asia uh, is that something that gets started before we start to see this explosion in demand, or do they go hand in hand? What's the dynamic behind, uh, you know, the 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 rapid spread versus this, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, this kind of real increase in you know palm oil in every you know every commercial product or you know so many commercial products. 
So my interpretation, and some economists might disagree with me here, is that palm oil is always, until recently, chasing demand. The demand is there. And it only grows in the 20th century as the world population grows and as people get richer. Uh, one of the, the first things people in developing countries do as their incomes go up is buy more food and buy more fat, uh, fried foods, packaged foods, prepared foods. Um, so the demand is there. Um, and there's demand outside food as well. Things like soap, shampoo, uh, more recently biofuels. Um, the potential uses are endless. And the only thing that holds back these uses is the supply and the price. Um, and so palm oil for, for most of its history until maybe uh, the last couple of years has been chasing this demand. And it's been chasing it alongside other big commodities like soybeans. But um, you know, soybeans are, are different in that they make animal feed. Um, the oil is sort of a secondary product. And so people don't plant soybeans for the oil, generally speaking. And so that contribution to the world oil supply, you know, the, the demand for oil doesn't necessarily mean more soybeans getting planted. Um, and so palm oil has always been responding to, to fill in this demand for more and more cheap oil. What is it that makes palm oil so attractive? I know it's partially solid or it is solid effectively at room temperature. So that makes it a, a viable replacement for things like butter uh, and more expensive uh, products like that. But beyond that, or maybe that's it, I don't know. I mean, what what kind of explains, uh, is it just so versatile and, and you know, easy to or extract? Or what what is it that makes palm oil so desirable? Well, as you mentioned, it is solid at, at room temperatures. And what makes it that kind of solidity is that it has this really even balance between saturated and unsaturated fatty acids. These are, you know, not to get too deep into the chemistry, but those are the two main kinds of fats. Um, saturated ones tend to be solid. Unsaturated ones tend to be liquid. And when you mix them in the right proportion, you get this thing that, like butter, is solid but still melts in your mouth. And yeah, you can make this from palm oil and many other fats. You can get a fully saturated fat, and it, it's like eating a candle. Um, it's, it's not very nice. And so palm oil in its direct state gives you this balance that's very useful in making a lot of products. But because it has both of these saturated and unsaturated fats, you can also crack it in half and get just the saturated, just the unsaturated, if that's what you want. Um, so it's very versatile in that respect, very flexible. But I think the, the point I try to make in the book is that these physical details are important, but what really matters is that palm oil is cheap. It's just incredibly cheap uh, throughout its history, um, at least since, the, since the, uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And it's cheap because the, the tree that makes it, the oil palm tree, is, is just an incredible thing. It, it makes more fat per hectare per tree than, than any other plant on earth. And it's that efficiency, I think, it largely accounts for, for why palm oil has become such a big part of, of the world's oil supply today. Focusing on, on Southeast Asia, as palm plantations develop in this region, as palm oil becomes a bigger and bigger commodity in the region, what kinds of things is it displacing? I mean, obviously, deforestation is a huge issue, and we can talk in more detail about that. But culturally, in terms of cuisine, uh, what what are the sorts of things that, that we see palm kind of crowding out? So in Southeast Asia, uh, and this is where, where most oil palm expansion has taken place since 1950, what it's mostly replacing is forest. Um, and 
It's forest that has oh, historically. Good. 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 Yeah, good. Well, yeah. Excellent. Has yeah. Historically, uh, what could what been, could be the problem? Really? Been th- thinly populated, but populated with a, just an incredible diversity of indigenous communities. Um, and these are communities that have long been mistreated by colonial states and then the successor states in Malaysia and Indonesia that have just not taken these communities very seriously. And so palm oil has swept across these deforested areas. It's usually coming after logging has already cleared it. And it's it's turning these very complicated forest ecosystems into, into palm monoculture, just endless, endless rows of palm trees. And if you've never looked at, at you know, satellite imagery or aerial photography, it, it's really striking how uniform these plantations are. You can spot a palm oil plantation on Google Maps uh, photos instantly just because of the shape of, of the palm crowns and how they're all laid out. So there's a, been a huge ecological toll and a big human toll as communities have been, been pushed out of forest lands. The culinary effects, I think, are a little less clear. What palm oil typically replaces are more expensive oils. And so in Indonesia, for example, where coconut has long been the preferred oil for cooking, people started using palm oil because it was cheap. They couldn't afford coconut oil anymore. Coconut is also grown on plantations, but it's a much lower yielding crop than oil palm. It's slower growing. It's much pickier about where it grows. And so, and palm oil in the form of a highly refined cooking oil um, has really swept aside coconut oil in a lot of everyday cooking in Southeast Asia. In Europe and in North America, you know, its arrival, I wouldn't say it's much of a loss because what palm oil replaced was hydrogenated soybean oil, uh, which in turn had already replaced lard um, and tallow and other animal fats. So, you know, I, I mean, in the American case, you know, we literally aren't missing it. We can't tell it's there because we couldn't really tell what was there before. And from a health point of view, it's probably a net benefit that those hydrogenated oils have been replaced with palm oil. This is yeah. It's the that's the kind of stuff my doctor yells at me if I eat. So um, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the modern contemporary concerns here, and uh, you know, one of them is uh, you know to go back to something we talked about earlier in the interview, uh, slave labor, uh, the use of of you know full on slave labor on some of these plantations. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Uh, what what has been learned about, you know, sort of the labor practices in these uh, plantations and, and what is, is being done uh, to try to, to counteract or, or to uh, prevent this kind of stuff from going on? And I, I guess child labor goes along with this. I was thinking... I would ask that as a separate question, but but maybe they could both be be treated together because they're they're both a problem. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, and so historically, the plantations developed not not with enslaved labor, but with contract labor, what's sometimes called coolie labor. Um, and this was in many places not all that different from slavery. Um, workers who had been uh, conscripted, uh, sold into debt slavery in some cases, and forced to work under pretty harsh conditions. Um, and that system largely fell apart after World War II. And for a long period, there was um, in, in first Malaysia and then later Indonesia, an era when labor is relatively free. It, it's people voluntarily working on these plantations or working on their own farms alongside plantations. Beginning in the 1990s, as these plantations continue to grow and grow and grow, 
we see this sudden boom in migrant labor, particularly uh, undocumented labor. Uh, Indonesians into Malaysia and people from the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, Myanmar, Bangladesh, even Nepal going into Indonesia. And because these workers are undocumented, they don't have a lot of rights in these systems. And so uh, there have been, as, as you know, many really concerning allegations of labor coercion, of conditions like slave labor. I think the most recent reports uh, from uh, Myanmar, which is a very new poll oil producer, have alleged some really horrific debt slavery conditions there. And the U.S. Customs just uh, concluded a couple of, just two years ago, a huge investigation into a big Malaysian plantation firm that, that concluded that they were effectively practicing debt slavery as well. I don't think it's right to say that the, you know, most plantation palm oil is made by slave labor. I think not by a long shot. But are most workers less free than they should be? I think absolutely. The, the kinds of coercive conditions that, that make the plantation work as an institution are still alive and well. And on the topic of child labor, this is again something that was initially um, encouraged by a lot of development organizations. Uh, the beginnings of the big plantation boom in Malaysia and Indonesia involved family resettlement. And it was expected that, that families would all participate uh, in harvesting palm crops. But as they've shifted away from this family-centered model towards a more conventional plantation model, um, you know, child labor has persisted, and it's, it's often to develop an association with migrant labor and undocumented labor. As uh, Maybe sort of as our final question, uh, let's talk a little bit about the notion of sustainability. I mean, I've seen estimates that the planet is going to be producing up to something like 250 million metric tons of palm oil per year by the middle of the century. It currently, we currently produce, I think, somewhere around 75 million. So that's a huge increase. And even to get to 75 million metric tons is required, uh, as you as you mentioned, a tremendous amount of deforestation in Indone places like Indonesia and Malaysia, where you have you know some of the only remaining rainforest on Earth uh, at a time when we should be you know we're trying to preserve rainforest in the Amazon and uh, in the Congo and and you know presumably in Southeast Asia as well. What does that look like? What does a world that's producing that much palm oil look like? And is there a way to do that without? causing a tremendous uh, amount of harm in, in other areas. Yeah, well, in Southeast Asia, the good news, bad news is uh, we're running out of forest to deforest. Um, so expansion in that region has to slow down. Palm oil has already for many years been replacing other crops, been replacing rubber plantations. And there's a lot of potential in many parts of the world in, in replacing cattle pasture, bananas, that sort of thing with oil palm. And it's mostly in Central and South America and in Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's still land that could be converted from, uh, not from forests, but from other agricultural uses into oil palm. And beginning about 15 years ago, there was a big rush of mostly Southeast Asian based, but some European companies as well, trying to set up shop in these areas and, and trying to do business the same way they had done in, in Indonesia and Malaysia. And, and the good news is most of them have not been very successful. Um, they've run into some really fierce opposition from local landowners and community organizations. 
we're not really excited about bringing this this plantation model to new places. And I think the future demand for palm oil hinges a lot on political choices. And, and the biggest one is biofuels. You know, biofuels are uh, not an environmental necessity. They don't make sense economically in most places. And yet Indonesia, even for its domestic needs, is turning a gigantic proportion, I think something like 30, 35% of its home oil crop into diesel fuel. It's burning it. During the first year of the COVID pandemic, Thailand burned an enormous portion of its palm oil crop for fuel oil. And if these policies continue, then demand for palm oil will continue to grow. If they stopped overnight, we would have more edible fat than the world could possibly use. We'd have a glut of palm oil. Um, and so I think the development of, of biofuel mandates has had a really pernicious effect on surviving rainforests uh, because it props up demand for palm oil much higher than, than food demand or soap demand uh, would, would put it at. This may be, you know, sort of a misguided question, but just to kind of, because we, as you've laid it out here, this is a this is a potential problem. I'm just curious if you could steer people towards, you know, is there something that, that people should look for in terms of labeling or, uh, you know, anything to keep an eye on as they're kind of consuming these goods that are loaded with palm oil to to try and do it in the the most responsible way possible. Well, I. You know, coming back to where we started this conversation, uh, you know, is there ethical consumption under capitalism? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure there is, but I, I think you can make less evil choices. So um, I'm I'm not fully convinced that these um, sustainability certification logos, uh, the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, is the big one. Um, you can find this this little palm logo on a lot of products. I'm not convinced it's enough or, or effective in promoting sustainability, but it is better than nothing. Um, so that's one step is shopping a little better. You, you are not going to save rainforests through your shopping choices, um, but you can be less bad through your shopping choices. I think political activism is always great. Um, you know, things like biofuels. I was just, I was really surprised actually uh, at how, fast and fierce the U.S. government was in 2020, 2021, when these reports about slave labor on palm oil plantations showed up. You know, it led to an immediate export ban on uh, some of the biggest Malaysian companies, and it forced them to, to move really quickly um, on what are hopefully serious reforms. And this is a theme I, I think point out repeatedly in the book, is, is that politics really matter. Um, it's not just about the economic side of supply and demand. And prices, um, politics really, really have have made the world that we live in, as far as palm oil is concerned. On that note, I think that's a a, a good place to end. Jonathan Robbins, again from Michigan Tech, author of Oil Palm: A Global History. Go pick it up. It's a really fascinating book about a topic that probably deserves, I think, well, certainly, I think, deserves a lot more attention uh, than it gets. Jonathan, thanks again for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> 